So let's take, a, uh, let's take some time to study Scripture together. We are going to be in the Gospel of John, and we are going to be in chapter number 9. I want to preach a message today that we've entitled Light and Darkness, about how Jesus brings light into the darkness of the world. And what I want to start uh, by doing is reading the first seven verses of John chapter number 9, and then we will pray, and uh, we will get into the message that we have. It's John chapter number 9. And we're going to read the first seven verses, and you follow along as we read. The Bible says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat upon the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. Verse number 8, The neighbors therefore, and they which before him had seen him, he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. And they said unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Let's stop there and pray, and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to get together with your people and preach and teach your word. And Lord, I pray now uh, that you will get the glory through the things that are said. Lord, as we think about how you bring light into the darkness of this world, bring light into the darkness of our lives, Lord, I pray that you will help us to not just be hearers of your word, but help us to be faithful doers of your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the light of the world. This is this powerful statement that Jesus makes about himself. And we, we know from scripture that there are at least two occasions where Jesus said these words about himself. Could have been more, but there are two accounts, right? Both in the Gospel of John. One we just read in chapter number nine, and the other in the chapter before, chapter number 8. And what I want to do as we kind of lay the foundation for this message is back up just a little bit, read that first account in verse number uh, 12 of chapter number 8, and sort of get a better understanding of what Jesus was talking about so that we can better understand the specific way we want to think about it today. The Bible says in John 8 and verse number 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So in chapter number 8, when Jesus makes this this statement, first time it's recorded for us, him making this statement, it is a very, very serious thing for him to say. The audience that he was speaking to, predominantly Jewish people, they would have immediately assumed that what Jesus was saying was making a claim to divine authority. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, And if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. Jesus is claiming that he has some sort of say over our spiritual life, that he has some sort of say over our standing before God. And that was no small thing for Jesus to claim. 
And so what you read in chapter number eight is when Jesus says these words, the Pharisees, who were not big fans of Jesus, they said, we know what you're saying about yourself and it's not true. So when Jesus makes this claim to divine authority, the Pharisees just say, you're a liar. And what Jesus will then go on to do in chapter number eight, verses 13 really through the end, is he will make a defense of his claim. So if you think about it this way, in chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what he then does is says, let me explain to you what that means. Let me give you all of the implications of that statement. And there's all sorts of fascinating uh, aspects of what Jesus said, right? There's a historical part of it. Jesus makes a connection between him, his life, and the history of Israel in a way that no one ever had before. Right? And when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, there's all sorts of imagery from the history. I mean, you go back to the story of uh, uh, Moses and he saw, heard the voice of God out of a what? A burning bush. There's these images that have to do with light all the way back to the beginning. Jesus said, uh, God said, let there be light. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, when he claimed to have this authority, it was serious. He was tying himself to history. And then he was tying himself to Jewish culture. They would have known right when Jesus said those words. It was right in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. And without time to really dig into all that that means, there was a lot of ways in which light played a part in their religious observance and practices. So there's all this history. There's all this culture. And then there's also theological implications. Jesus is like, I'm going to make some, I'm going to make some claims about myself. And I know you're not going to like it, but this is the truth. In fact, at the end of chapter 8, when he's done making the history connection and the culture connection, he finally makes a divine connection. And in verse 58 of chapter 8, he says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus really finishes off his defense of that claim by making another divine claim, this time to divine nature. He says, before Abraham was, I am. You say, well, What's the point of talking about what happened in chapter number eight? Because in chapter eight, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he says, here's what that means in history, and here's what it means in culture, and here's what it means theologically in terms of who I am, all of those are fascinating areas of study. But we're not going to pay any attention to any of those. And you're like, well, then why did we do that, right? Why, why start there? Two reasons, right? Number one is to get the full weight of what Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Understand that it's not just practical, although that's what we're going to see, but there's depth and there's layers to it. It's important to get that context before we get into the message that we have. But the second reason is this. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to love the word of God. And if you love the word of God, you will be fascinated by the word of God. And the reason that we start in chapter 8 and lay the groundwork and talk about history and culture and theology is because that invites you and me as followers of Jesus to say, I want to dig into the word of God for myself. And if you're here and you're maybe new to your faith or you're growing in your faith, I want to commend to you Bible study, digging into the word of God, learning what it says for yourself. You will be greatly blessed by developing the habit of reading and meditating on and studying scripture yourself because that's the foundation. When you dig deeper into the word, right, it's, there's so much there, right? So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, man, there's history and culture and theology. But what's cool is we go from chapter eight to chapter nine and it's almost like this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Here's what that means. But in chapter number nine, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Let me show you what that looks like. 
Let me give you some practical examples of what it actually looks like for me to bring light into the darkness of this world. And so when Jesus makes the statement again in verse 5 of chapter 9, we're already right in the middle of Jesus bringing light into the darkness. We're already right into the middle of Jesus showing us, showing you and showing me what it's like. And the reason that it's so cool to see the practical ways that Jesus is the light of the world, because that's the truth. It's not that Jesus was the light of the world. He is the light of the world. And it's not that Jesus one time in history brought light into darkness and changed the circumstances and transformed lives. He's still doing that today changing the circumstances and transforming lives. And so what we want to see in chapter number nine are several examples, real life examples of what it looks like for Jesus to be the light of the world, to bring light into the darkness of our lives. Now we could study the whole chapter because the whole chapter tells the story of how Jesus heals a man that's blind and what happens immediately after that. And there are at least nine or 10 unique examples of Jesus bringing light into the world. But we're going to study the first major section, which is the passage that we read today, starting in verse 1 and going down to verse number 12. And we're going to look at three real-life examples, ways that Jesus brings light into the darkness of the world. So what's the first example? The first is in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. There's these contrasting perspectives between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus is going to bring light into the lives of his disciples. Aren't you thankful that despite our shortcomings and our blind spots and the ways that we're um, not a finished product, that we have a God who is patient with us and loves us and who works with us? Because what's going to happen here is what happens over and over again in the life of the, the disciples is that they, something, they say something that is not quite right and Jesus very lovingly and patiently helps them see where they are limited in their thinking. And so the contrasting perspective of the disciples and Jesus, this is how Jesus brings light. And I'm grateful that if you'll be humble and I'll be humble today, he'll help you in your blind spots where your thinking isn't quite right. He'll help renew your mind. He'll help train you and transform you. So let's think about the contrasting perspectives. And we start with the disciples. Verse number two. I'm going to read it again for you. The Bible says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I don't know about you. I read that and I think, man, how cold and callous can you be? I mean, here they're walking along with Jesus. They come across a man. He's blind. We know later from the story that he's been sitting in that particular general area for a long time, begging for a long time. He lives a difficult life. He goes through, he's, he, he has experienced some serious suffering in his life. And the disciples look at him and says, must be getting punished for something. Right? God must have brought this into his life because of sin in his life or sin in someone else's life. This is a very limited way of thinking about sin and suffering. But before we're too hard on the disciples, before we're quick to judge, I want to challenge our thinking in two ways about this, right? The first way is that the disciples actually have a reason for thinking this way, right? They are a product of the culture around them, and their thinking is influenced by their upbringing and by their culture. The disciples would have had all these stories from when they were little about how their ancestors were out in the wilderness and God had just delivered them from bondage only for them to complain. And for the story, for those that might be more familiar with the story, you know, Jesus gave them food from heaven. And they were like, eh, maybe something else. You got anything else up there? 
right? And the complaining and the murmuring of the people. And what happened? They were judged by God and they were judged in the form of physical sickness. In fact, when we read, um, and I don't think this verse is going to be up on the screen. Let me read it for you. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and that thou mayest obey his voice and that thou mayest cleave unto the Lord for he is thy life and the length of thy days. The, disi the disciples would have had this reference point that there is blessings for obedience and cursing for disobedience and that the cursing was often very physical and tangible in nature. So they have a reason for thinking this way. Another reason that they think this way is the influence of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious of the day, they're going to make it all about the way you look, the position that you have, the money you have, the stuff you have. That's God's blessing. So they are being influenced by their culture, by their upbringing, right? That's the first reason we should give them a break. But the second reason we should give them a break, and this is a little more personal for us, is that the truth is we think like the disciples think more often than we care to admit. Especially when it comes to this idea of suffering. The truth is our perspective very much similar and for some reasons and for some of the same reasons culture tells us that success is uh, good health or financial success or stuff or career advancement. And so in many ways as Christians we think that same way. If God is blessing me, if he's working in my life, then bad things won't happen or things that I consider to be bad. And so if I'm sick or if I'm struggling financially or if there's some other issue I'm facing in my life, I must be doing something wrong or God must not be blessing me or working in my life. If, the, if, we're, if we're truthful, we think like the disciples think more often than we should. And we have the same reason for thinking that way. But here's where Jesus brings light. Aren't you thankful that where we come short, we have a Savior who's willing to patiently and love us, lovingly show us where we come short. Because there's the perspective of the disciples, very limited, very temporal. It's focused on the physical. If God's blessing, then there must be physical blessings. But Jesus steps in in verse number three and says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. Now, I've always read this story and thought to myself, if I was that guy, I'd have been like, what now? Like, back up just a bit. Like, what did he just say? He just said, nobody sinned. This isn't punishment. This isn't God bringing suffering into this man's life because of something that he did or his parents did. It's all been for this moment. It's all been so that right here, right now, I could get the glory in and through this man. Now, that is a different perspective on suffering. That's a perspective that's not so limited and temporal, but one that is eternal. Jesus says, there is a God. He's in control. He's always working. And even through difficult things, he can work. Even things that hurt, he can use to bring glory to himself. Now, before we read a couple passages that help kind of solidify this in our minds. Let me say this. There are some of you and you're going through difficult things or you have people in your life that are going through difficult things. And if we're honest about how we feel, they're awful. Right? And the truth is that sometimes we, uh, sometimes we try to uh, sanitize our suffering. 
right? We feel like maybe, especially when we come to church, that we can't just be honest about the fact that some of us are going through difficult things or people that we love are going through difficult things, and this is how we really feel. It hurts, I hate it, and I wish it would stop. But you know, it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to be honest about how you feel about the difficulty that you're going through. Uh, suppressing how we feel or pretending like we don't feel that way, that's not God's plan for us. What he invites us to do is to be honest about how we feel, but to have the faith to believe that he can still be working, even in the midst of difficult things. That he can take some of the pain and the difficulty that we go through. There's a reason why so many people can become discouraged and despondent in following Jesus, is because if we make... God's blessing, physical and tangible, if it's all about, if it's going to look this way, it's going to work out this way, we are going to be discouraged because Jesus told his disciples, in the world you'll have tribulation. Sometimes we're going to go through difficult things. Do we have the faith to believe? Are we going to let Jesus be, bring some light into our life, invite him to expand our perspective and see that sometimes, even through difficult things, he can bring glory to himself? Paul gives at least two places in the New Testament where he lays out this kind of way of thinking about the Christian life. Philippians 4 verses 9 through 13. Let me read these verses. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again wherein ye were also careful but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Right? The context of what is probably one of the more well-known verses in the Bible is the context is this. I, can, um, I know how to experience physical blessing to have my need, my physical needs met, to have what I need food-wise, to have what I need money-wise, and I also know what it's like to suffer need. But I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I know how to abound, and I know how to be abased. I know how to not abound. I know how to have zip, zero, nothing. And you might be here, and you might be thinking to yourself, I'm, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Have you ever considered the possibility that what you're going through that's difficult, some of the suffering that you're enduring, do you have the faith to believe that God can take it and use it to bring glory to himself? I know it hurts. I know you hate it. And I hope it stops for you too. I hope God's plan is that it ends and it ends quickly. But we have to have the faith to believe that God can take the suffering and use it to bring glory to himself. There's another passage, 2 Corinthians 4 verses 5 through 18. This is a lot of verses. But this is like, let's just, just let the word of God wash over you on this one. Right? This is... These are powerful, powerful place in Scripture. And see if as we read these verses, if you can't, can't relate to some. The Bible says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. 
always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That is the life that our Savior calls us to live. One in which we bear in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. You and I are going to suffer some things in this life because it's a sinful and a broken world. And we have a God who is sovereign and good and who can work even in the difficulty and bring glory to himself. That doesn't mean that it's easy. doesn't mean we have to pretend that we like it. Right? doesn't mean we have to pretend that it's all fine. No, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be dry eyes all the time. No, there's going to be some weeping. There's going to be some struggle. But there is a God who is working. He said it's not, it's not sin. He's not, he's not suffering because of sin. Because sometimes suffering can be the work of God in our lives. So Jesus brings light to his disciples. There's these contrasting perspectives. What an awesome way that our Savior lovingly and patiently shows us where we're coming up short. But what else? What's another example of Jesus bringing light in this situation? Probably the most obvious one in the whole story, and that is there's a blind man and Jesus heals him, right? The miraculous healing of the blind man. After Jesus helps his disciples see that their thinking might be a little bit narrow, he then turns his attention to the man who's in need. In verse number six, and when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Right? So there's this awesome moment where Jesus says, Guys, it's not have anything to do with any sin. It's so that I could work mightily in his life and that God could be glorified. So then he turns his attention and he heals him. Now, there are two really particular ways that we want to think about the healing. Right? But we'll make one comment about what is probably of great interest to most people. Whoa, what's up with the spit and the clay in this situation there? Right? And this is another example of why Bible study is so much fun. But if we want to give the short, boring example, a boring answer of what it is, Jesus uh, uses a method of healing this man that he knew would not sit well with the Pharisees. Right? The Bible says that he spit on the ground, he made clay. Uh, just so you know, I'm sure you probably could have figured that out. That's not how they made clay. 
right? They used other moisture, right? So Jesus makes a very kind of crude clay, puts it on his eyes. So when he recounts this story to his neighbors and then to the Pharisees, and he says, well, basically he kind of like made clay, um, that's going to set them off. And Jesus knew that. In fact, another example of Jesus bringing light is how he shines a spotlight on the Pharisees. We're not going to get to that, right? But lest I roll past it and some of you are like, why didn't we talk about the clay and the skin? Jesus wants everyone to see what the Pharisees are all about. And so he does something that he knows is going to get a reaction. Now, that might not be the most exciting interpretation. Now, there's some other ways that you can think about how God healed, Jesus healed in this way, but that's the most realistic um, and the simplest explanation. So let's turn to the two parts of it that we want to think about more. The first is that the healing is a picture, an obvious, beautiful picture of salvation. If you're here this morning and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that means you're saved. And what a wonderful thing it is to be saved. Are there saved people in the room this morning? Amen. If you're here and you're saved, that's the work that Jesus wants to do in the life of every single person. And when Jesus heals this man, he gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like for somebody to go from spiritual darkness into spiritual light. 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When you got saved, you went from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. And that is the same work that God desires to do in the hearts of all people. And it would do us well to remember that those who do not believe and who have not been saved are in spiritual darkness before we're too hard on people, before we judge people for the way that they are. Uh, we have to remember their spiritual darkness. What they need is the glorious light of the gospel. What they need is to be brought from the darkness into the light. Then we can work with them and pray with them and help them. But until then, we ought not to expect those who are in the dark to act like they're in the light because they're not in the light. They're in the dark. And when the glorious light of the gospel shines into someone's life, it transforms things, it changes things. What a beautiful picture of salvation, the healing of this man is. We read this verse a second ago. I'm going to read it again. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the work of that Jesus Christ wants to do in the life of every person. So the healing is a picture of salvation, but the healing is also an example of compassion. Jesus is the light of the world. He shows us what it means to see people saved and to see their lives changed. He also shows us what it means to have compassion. And that is the kind of person that Jesus was. He showed us what it looks like to see people in their need and to love them and to serve them and to care for them in their need. There are two passages in the Gospels, Matthew 14, 14, Mark 1, 40 through 41. I'm keeping the, uh, the, these guys hopping this morning with all these verses, okay? But the, uh, these two passages both tell us about what kind of a compassionate person that Jesus was. Uh, when it comes to being compassionate, that's love in action, where we see people in their need and we try to help them in their need. There are probably two big reasons why we struggle to be compassionate. Number one, we get overwhelmed by the need. Man, there's lots of people and lots of needs. 
So we think to ourselves, I mean, what difference can I make? And can I tell you, Jesus gives us an example here. You know, isn't it amazing to think that in Jesus' short public life and ministry, there were lots of sick people that Jesus didn't heal. There were lots of things that he couldn't do. The Bible even tells us that because of unbelief and other things, uh, he didn't work mighty works. There's a lot that Jesus could have done, but there was much that didn't get done because Jesus lived a life like you and me, one person, limited time, limited resources. Um, what you and I need to remember is that when it comes to being compassionate, it starts in your life with the people that God has put in your life. Jesus showed us what it looks like to have compassion for the people who are right in front of us. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the opportunity to minister to the people that God has put in your life, to love them and serve them, because that's the example that Jesus gives us. He healed the people who were there. He loved the people who were closest to him. And some of us, we think, I want to be a compassionate person. I got to go find somebody who has needs. If you're married, your spouse needs you. If, you're chill, if you have children, your children need you. If you have family or friends or neighbors or coworkers, people in your world, those are the people where it starts. Have compassion for those people. Love those people. Serve those people. One reason we don't have compassion or that we lack compassion is because we, we think too big. God has given you people, love them and serve them. But probably the one that uh, resonates with most people. And Jesus gives us some help here too. One of the reasons we, don't, we aren't compassionate is because we've tried that. And people do what people do. And instead of being grateful for our love and our compassion for them, they're not. And one of the reasons we lack compassion is because we've been there, done that, got burned, and I'm not interested in putting myself out there like that anymore. Now, if that's where you are, it's like I've tried to love people selflessly and sacrificially. I've tried to serve. I've tried to give. And all I got in return was the awfulness of people. First of all, let me tell you that I know where you're coming from. And we also have a Savior who knows where we're coming from. Where he just poured himself out there, loved people, served people, only to have it pushed back in his face. And what he invites us to do, what he invites you to do, is for me and to trust him and keep, listen, you, you, I, you have one life to live. Love people the way that Jesus has called us to love people. Love people the way he has showed us to love people. We have one life to live. And listen, if you're here and you're hurting because you've tried this and it's gotten thrown back at you, can I tell you, I'm praying for you. I hope that you, it's not, this isn't a message where uh, if you're hurt, get over it. You need to get back out there. No, like some of you are hurt and it hurts and you're going to have to work your way through it. Don't think that that's what we're talking about. Well, what we're saying is this, we have one life to live. We need to live it the way Jesus has called us to live it. And that's with sacrificial love and care for others. And even if you're hurting, my prayer is that you'll be able to give it to God and keep on serving and keep on loving because that's the kind of life he's called us to live. Jesus is the ultimate example of compassion. See, the Pharisees in chapter number 8 just called him a liar, just told him how awful he was. And Jesus could have said, you know what, forget this, it's too much. But he turns right around in chapter number 9 and loves people and serves people. That's the example that Jesus gives us. My grandfather, uh, my both grandfathers have pastored for 40 plus years. And uh, one uh, story that my grandfather always tells, it just kind of blows my mind. Um, they were, he pastored in... Uh, a state north of here that I won't mention what. But um, when he was there, uh, there was a time where uh, uh, the, a lot of people in his church, uh, they were working at auto plants and in the mid-80s and late-80s, there was a lot of layoffs. And he went from having a church kind of moving along to a church of a lot of unemployed people. And there was a family in his church, 
and they had four children and they had one car and, and it wasn't working particularly great and it finally quit on them. And he went to my grandmother and said, you know what, I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me to give them one of our cars. And the way my grandmother tells the story, she's like, I don't feel the Holy Spirit leading us to do that. Like, I don't, I think our wires are crossed, but they, they talked about it, they prayed about it, they said, okay, we're going to give them the car. So they gave them the car and about four or five months later, they got upset about something. Like, you know how people do. Maybe you've never gotten upset, but they got upset. And they got upset to the point where they were like, you know what, we're, we're, we're not coming to the church anymore. We're leaving the church. And so they left their, They came on a Sunday morning to tell them we're not coming back anymore. We're upset. And my parent, grandparents are pleading with them, you know, don't leave. Like, let's talk about it. Let's try to figure it out. And they follow them outside. And they said, no, there's nothing you can say. And they pile into my grandparents' car. Not their car anymore, but it was their car. And they peel out of the parking lot. My grandfather's like gravels flying everywhere. And he says, you know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. <laughs> I mean, they just drove away in our car. And my grandmother's like, I told you we shouldn't have given them that car. Like, look, they, they escaped. But my grandfather had a choice to make. He's like, you know, I can either get really, really upset about this. Maybe talk to some other people in the church. Tell them that the people that left, tear them down, get angry, get bitter. But he said, I had to just trust the Lord. And so we committed that we weren't going to do that. Uh, about a year goes by, and uh, that family, their oldest child, gets into a fight with their the mother about getting a haircut. Random stuff. He had a ponytail. She came up behind him and snipped his ponytail off. All right, the fight got real, man. It got real. And this kid got so angry that he climbed up, and you know those, like, Window seats, you know, window seat. He got up in there and he's kicking this window. And he broke it. And he fell and he cut his leg. I mean, deep cut his leg. They scoop him up, they take him to the hospital. The doctors are saying, it's not just his leg we're worried about him losing. We might not, you might not have him tomorrow morning. And they called someone. You know who they called? At one in the morning, my grandfather. And he got on the phone and he starts talking to them and she's like, the mothers, will you come? Will you come to the hospital? So he hung up the phone and my grandmother's like, I don't even ask me. I know what you're going to do, so just go, right? His grandmother's like, I don't want to. Grandma would, this is how she would tell the story, so don't think I'm throwing grandma under the bus. She'd be like, I, I told him, don't go. But he went. And he ministered to them, and he loved them, and he cared for them. You see, I mean, after they did that, after they would, they would treat him that way, after that kind of kindness? Yeah, because that's the way that Jesus calls us to love and live for people. That's not easy. That's different. That's something different from culture. It's something different from what we see around us. But it is the way that God has called us to love and to serve people. Jesus is the light of the world. He shows us what it means when our perspective is limited, and he shows us what it means through the healing of the man picture of salvation and what compassion is like. Very quickly, the last example that he gives is there's a testimony of the healed man. So the guy gets healed and he starts telling people about it. And the Bible tells us that he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Right? It's not until the end of chapter number 9 that Jesus will seek this man out and say, hey, by the way, I'm the Messiah. Would you like to believe on me? And he'll believe and he'll worship. So he doesn't even know. He doesn't even fully understand who Jesus is. And yet he is a very, very 
passionate and bold witness for Jesus. Just like uh, our, uh, what we're commanded to be. The Bible says in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. This is what each and every one of us are called to do, is to be witnesses for Jesus in the world, to tell people like this man did about what Jesus did for him. Now, three very quick, simple observations about his testimony, how he witnessed. Jesus is the light of the world. One of the ways that he wants to be a light in the world is by using you and me to tell people about his love and his grace. He wants us to be witnesses. There are three simple observations. The first one is this. His testimony was all about Jesus. You say, oh, that's fascinating, right? His testimony was all about Jesus. But here's the thing. There is a great temptation to talk about anything and everything other than our faith anything and everything other than our Savior, Jesus. What people need to hear from you and what people need to hear from me is that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for their sins. That is the message that people need to hear. It is all about Jesus. Before anything else, it's all about Jesus. And as you seek to be a witness in this world, as you seek to tell people about what Jesus has done for you, stay on mission and stay on target. If the devil can get us talking, if the evil that's at work in this world can get us talking about our politics, can get us talking about our opinions, can get us talking about all of our family issues, if he can get you talking about anything else, he'll get it and he'll take it. But he's terrified when Jesus' followers talk about Jesus. When those of us who believe invite others to believe, it needs to be all about Him. There were some passages, we're not going to read them, but the, uh, the essence of His testimony, what, what, what did it start with, what did it end with? Jesus. And that's how you and I ought to be, and you ought to ask God to help give you clarity of mind. Listen, we're going into a season. In 2024, I don't know if something's happening, happens every four years. You guys might not know about it, but it's happening in 2024, right? And it, 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 it has the potential to distract us from the things that matter most. You say, oh, pastor, there's things that are important, and there's this issue, and there's that issue, and you're not wrong. I pray for wisdom for each and every one of us to know what to say and how to say it. But one thing I know for sure is that whatever you say at work, whatever you say across the fence to your neighbor, whatever you say at the family reunion, whatever you post on social media, First and foremost, it ought to be about getting people to Jesus. And when we allow the forces that are at work in this world and this flesh that we have to get us off topic and off mission, we miss opportunities to be a witness for Jesus. It's all about him, right? But it was also really personal. I love this about his story. He just tells them what happened to him. And I love how it starts. A man who is called Jesus. Isn't that a great way to start a story? If you're saved... That's how your story starts. A man who is called Jesus. And here's what will happen sometimes. I grew up in church. I heard people tell stories of how they were living a difficult life and how they were addicted and how they had challenges and then God saved them. I got saved when I was eight. Right? The worst things were like eating cookies before you were supposed to and that kind of thing. I didn't have some great conversion story. And so I kind of struggled with that for a while. But listen, if you have a story that starts this way, a man who is called Jesus, it doesn't matter how old you were or what had happened in your life up until that point, it is a story worth telling. And some of you have some things in your past, things that God delivered you from and he worked in your life in a miraculous way. And you wonder, could that benefit? Is that going to work? You let God take your story and he will use it to bring glory to himself. That is what we ought to desire. 
And your story has unique people and unique places and unique circumstances. And whatever God might lead you, if you're comfortable with, to share with others, you'd be amazed at how he can take your story and use it to bring people to Jesus because that's what it's all about. This man's story was personal. They're like, well, I was sitting by the side of the road and Jesus came and said, hey, uh, you've been blind, but we're going to take care of that. And he put stuff all over my eyes and I went and washed and here I am. And what you'll see if you read the rest of the chapters, he just keeps telling that story. They try to get him to change his story. They try to get him to um, uh, change the main character of his story. They try to get him to stop telling his story. And no matter how much they press and push, he just keeps telling his story. And that's what you and I ought to do. It was all about Jesus. It was personal. But it was honest, right? As we close things out. I love this part of the story. They came to him and they said, where is Jesus? I don't know. Later, they'll be like, who do you think Jesus is? I don't know. Prophet, maybe. They're like, well, why do you think he healed? I, I, I don't know. Right? And you read this and you think, man, this guy's got nothing. He's got no answers. One of the reasons I think we are afraid to be witnesses for Jesus, especially in the world that we're living in today, is you're afraid of getting asked a question you don't know the answer to. You're afraid of somebody pushing you on an issue that's sensitive or controversial. I don't know what I'm going to say if I get asked this or I get asked that. And you can be sure that the devil would love for you to believe that. But here's what I found and what I think the example of this man that shows us. Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to use you and me to be witnesses. And it's okay that you don't have all the answers. In fact, if we look at this man's testimony. He's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You'd be surprised how much people are looking for somebody who's authentic, who will just tell the truth, who will just be honest about what they know and don't know. Do not let your perception of your own limited knowledge keep you from being a witness. In fact, you can use it. Somebody asks you about something you're not sure about. Somebody gets you into a conversation. You know what? Why don't we talk again? Why don't we get together again? Why don't you research? Why don't I research? Don't miss the opportunity to create more gospel conversations because this guy gives us a perfect example. Just be honest. And yes, you ought to desire that God would grow you in your knowledge of his word and his truth so that you can answer questions and you can help people to understand uh, different areas that people struggle with. But in the end... What people need is to be authentic, real Christians. People who don't have it all together. See, that's one of our, one of our problems. You don't need to be a superhero. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to be um, uh, all things to all people. You just need to be you. God saved you. He has, he, your story is unique. How he's worked in your life is unique. Just let God use you. Just be you. Just be real. And watch while God uses that. This guy doesn't put any pretense. It's like five seconds ago, I couldn't see anything. Now I can see. That's all I've got. And God used it. And Jesus worked through his life. And he'll work through you too. When we're just honest, authentic, real. Right? We don't need to play church. We don't need to be pretend that we've got it all together, that we have all the answers. You can just be grateful and I can just be grateful that we have a God who takes us with all of our mess and all of our stuff and uses us. Jesus is the light of the world. The way that he works in and through this world, he brings light into the darkness and he does it in so many amazing ways.